I'm Henry Bean, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about D. Constructing Harry. <laughs> Welcome to the World is Wrong, an extreme positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts and my name is Andras Jones. And I'm one of your hosts and my name is Brian Connolly. And we are here to talk about one of the film artists the world may be the most wrong about. Regardless of what you think about him, you're pretty sure that half of the world is wrong about him. And we're talking about one of my favorite films of his. Maybe my favorite film of his. We'll get into talking Whoa. about it. Deconstructing Whoa. Harry. You've seen this <laughs> film before, Brian? Uh, yeah. Uh, only once when it came out, like the day it came out. Back in 1997, I was on a uh, run of seeing his movies in the theater. Like so before this was Everyone Says I Love You. Saw that in the theater. Saw this in the theater after this was Celebrity. So I was definitely like... Feeling the Woody in the late 90s, as the kids say. <laughs> Hope the kids aren't saying that. Um, so, okay, well then, uh, let's play one of many amazing scenes from this movie, and then let's talk about it. Sorry if they just couldn't understand the reasoning and the logic that went on in my head. I had a brain, it was insane, so just let them laugh at me when I refused to ride on all those double because there was no driver on the top. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. Lucy. You smuck, you bastard. I'd have to cut your fucking head off. You're upset, right? How could you do that? Didn't you know what would happen? What would it? Don't! Answer me, prick. You knew. You just didn't give a shit. Look, why don't you take your coat off for a second and just... How could you write that book? Huh? Are you so selfish? You're so self-engrossed, you don't give a shit who you destroy. Yes, you I told our you. whole story. All the details. You gave me away to my sister. Marvin's left me. He's gone. Hey, I was loosely based on us. Don't I'm... bullshit me, motherfucker. Who do you think you're talking to? One of those retarded talk show hosts? I lived through it with you, okay? I know how loosely based it is. Hey, what are you telling me? That your, your blind grandmother caught us fucking one day? Never. No, no, of course, of course. You made a few stupid exaggerations or, you know, as the critics say, inspired comic flights. But Jane recognized it. Well, you'd have to be sub-mental not to. And Marvin was crushed, crushed. Jane suspected us. I can't tell you how long it Yeah, I, I know, I know, and I denied it. And now you've gone and... You've gone and confirmed it all for us. I mean, big fucking deal. You, you made Leslie shorter. Big fucking deal. But it's all here. The poor schmuck country doctor, the violinist, her younger sister in Connecticut cheating with her husband. The picture window, for Christ's sake. Cruel observations about Marvin with his barbecue and his chef's hat. And, of course, Jane, or as you pathetically disguise her, Janet. Here it is. 
It was not simply that Leslie had become numbed with the inane spate of leaden perceptions that passed for wit from Marvin. It was not even the image she shared wickedly with Ken of Marvin's flaccid, microscopic member jiggling up and down as he bounced naked on tiptoes across the rugless, icy floor of their Connecticut home to close the storm windows. It was that she had never loved him. But, but, but wanted to have children to retaliate against her older sister who did not have a maternal bone in her being and whose every inch Leslie felt was occupied by gluttonous self-love. Ken ran his hand over Leslie's large round breasts and mounted her from the rear. Oh, big fucking deal. You gave her large Leslie, breasts. Leslie, please. Lucy. I'm Lucy, motherfucker. Not Leslie. Except, of course, I am Leslie, because you made no attempt to disguise anything. You didn't give a fuck. You didn't care enough to disguise anything. Please. Jesus. You pulled out two years ago. You broke my fucking heart. You left your wife and me for some little coos. Me and Janet. Jane. Jan Janet is the character in the, in the book. Now, two years on. Your latest magnum opus emerges from this sewer of an apartment where you take everyone's suffering and turn it into gold. Literary gold. Everyone's misery. You even cause their misery. But mix your fucking alchemy and, and make it into gold like some fucking black magician. Hey, give me a break. I'm the one who wound up in Bellevue. You deserve it and worse. Lucy! You ruined my life. I've come in to blow my brains out. What's wrong with you? In front of you. In front of you on your carpet. You because you caused it. My fucking brain's on your You're carpet. You're so fucking unstable. Will you relax? But that's relax? why you, you picked me, isn't it? That's what turns you on about me, Jane's crazy sister. Oh, calm down. You're not going to kill yourself. No. No, you're not, because it's not in you. You're not, you, you're not the dramatic type. You never were. J Jane is the dramatic sister. Jane is the, the solo violinist. Relax, for Christ's sake. You're right. I don't have the nerve to kill myself. I knew it, you know, as I came over here. I said, no, not me. Better to kill him. Pardon me? Kill the black magician. So we can't spin any more gold out of human misery. Lucy, what's wrong with you? Shut put up! The, put, the, put it down. You're so Lu fucking Lu verbal. Put it down. Who else could have taught me into giving Lucy. him a blue job at my Lucy. father's funeral? Lucy. Think it over. You. You stop right there. No, don't shoot. Don't pull the trigger. Look, look. If it makes you happy, I, my life has been going very badly. I've been miserable. My girl left me. She went off with a close friend of mine. Everything's been insomnia. I got herpes. I squandered everything I have on on shrinks and lawyers and whores. Teague syndrome. Look, I'm not gonna stand up here on this fucking roof with a, a world-class machigana cunt and beg for my life. If you want to shoot me, shoot me. I was working. You interrupted me. So whose life were you exploiting today? You know, I, you'll be very Rewriting them. I was working on a little autobiographical thing about when I was first married. What Charlie Chaplin did to Adolf Hitler in The Great Dictator, Woody Allen does to himself in Deconstructing Harry. <laughs> Woody Allen's career as a director can be deconstructed into three phases. The first are the films in which he is playing off the character he created as a stand-up comic and writer. 
that of a nebbishy Jewish guy who claims to be a stud, but that's ludicrous because, come on, he's a nebbishy Jewish guy. This runs through all of his films, up through everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask. Some would say through love and death, but I think that's the beginning of the next phase. Beginning with love and death, Annie Hall, and Alan's role in the front, we enter the era of Woody Allen as critically acclaimed comic auteur, the age in which he and the super Jewy character he created is universally loved and respected. This is the phase that ends with Deconstructing Harry, and I think it is one of the most exciting runs of filmmaking in the history of the medium. Everything after that is the later period, or the latter period, if you'd like to say. And we're here to celebrate Deconstructing Harry, the film in which Alan breaks his archetype in more ways than we are going to be able to reconstruct here. It's my favorite of his films, and I love almost all of them. So let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> so what? So how is the world wrong about this movie? Well, you know what I think uh, about how the world is wrong about Woody in a lot of ways that we discuss in our wrongness episode. Uh, I should write, say what number episode that is. Episode number 65. So if you want to hear us talk about the controversy surrounding Woody Allen, you can check that out. But we're going to have to reference it because this film references it to some degree. But when we do, we're going to be doing that in the context of, well, first of all, clear. I want to come out and be clear that I think Woody Allen is innocent of what he's been accused of. And uh, that's my opinion. But this is really, this whole film is Woody Allen's response. I feel like in a lot of ways, Woody Allen's response to that. So it's not about what's real or what's true or anything other than this is his artistic response to going through this deconstructing experience that he went through. So a lot of people like to use films like Manhattan to make the case that Alan is what he has been accused of being. And I think Deconstructing Harry makes a very different case. Faced with accusations of being a sexual predator, Alan's cinematic response is to make a film that says, you think I'm evil, but I'm sorry, I'm only terrible. And uh, this is the response of an innocent man. Or we are left to draw our own conclusions. Maybe it's uh, more black magic from this black magician, as Judy Davis calls him in the film. But whatever you think about all of this, the mastery of form and content that Alan and the crew he constructed over all those years display in eviscerating his own image is what makes this my favorite Woody Allen film and one of my favorite films of all time. So, yeah, that's my that's my <laughs> treatise on why this film is <clears throat> worth watching and how the world is wrong about it. Nice. Uh, so did you, I'm assuming you saw this when it came out. Yes. But I should also say that I really, I really, really disliked the films on either end of it. I, I, really? Everyone Says I Love You <laughs> is a travesty. Uh, oh. Yeah. I, my point, my, my reason, here's the thing. Woody Allen is 
is a musician. He's a jazz musician. He's made it. He's a he's a jazz snob. He'll go out of his way to mock Bob Dylan as being goofy because he's not sophisticated. All reasonable points of view to have. But then to make your only musical and cast actors who can't sing to destroy standards. Maybe I like I could see Judd Apatow doing that. I just can't <laughs> see I don't like to me it's a it's a betrayal of Woody Allen's supposed love of jazz. And then celebrity just kind of bored me. Maybe I could go back to it and get something out of it, but they're two Yeah, they're my two maybe my two least favorite Woody Allen wow. films. Wow. I really I really like both of them a lot. Uh and I think when this came out, I was really shocked by Deconstructing Harry because I really didn't like I didn't really know what I was getting into because everything when I, everyone says I love you is so like it's a movie you can watch with your parents. It's like that kind of Woody Allen movie where it's like it's a funny musical and, you know, Alan Alda's in it or whatever. And you can like enjoy this thing. And then to kind of go from that into this very kind of like brutal dissection of <laughs> of your own of your own life and also just how clearly r-rated this movie is within the first five minutes and then it never lets go of that <laughs> like this is a movie for grown-ups and woody allen hadn't made a movie for grown-ups since husbands and wives like even mighty aphrodite even though the character in that is a prostitute that is not a offensive movie in any way i don't think i don't think it is but like the just the amount of profanity out of Judy Davis's mouth <laughs> at the very beginning, and also just the sex being actual sex scenes, which Woody Allen kind of tend to shy from, exact you know, and like just the kind of the, the the intentional crassness of a lot of it, and like I think that kind of took me. Like so many times, people talk about blowjobs in this movie, <laughs> and I just remember being shocked, being like, whoa. Woody's grown up. This is uh this is an R-rated. This is like a movie for grown-ups. <laughs> oh yeah, no. This is this is a masterwork from someone being more personal. Yeah. Or playing on their personal uh life that's hidden behind. They've already mined their character and then they've deepened that character, but now they're he's just deconstructing it. He is completely yeah taking it apart and this is i wouldn't even say this is a film for grown-ups this is a film for woody <laughs> and to me when an artist especially a very popular artist m makes that kind of uh i don't know i don't it's not even a statement it's just uh unleashes themselves from considerations that might drive other films of like who's gonna like this and who's this for and why am I doing this and what's my take on this this feels like I know what I need to say and you know these other films I feel like are drifting like before this yeah uh every, like <laughs> everyone says I love you and mighty Aphrodite I like I love bullets over Broadway but even that feels a little bit like drifty. I'm trying to figure out like when, like the last film that feels like this in his catalog is Crimes and Misdemeanors from 89. That feels like an I need to make this movie movie. And a lot of his movie, and I love that Woody Allen, you know, his whole thing is I'm going to make a movie every year. I'm going to write 
a movie, while I'm directing a movie, while I'm cutting a movie, and just keeps them coming, which means that sometimes you're like, oh, let's, what if I tried a musical? If my answer <laughs> would be, well, cool, you're going to cast some great singers, right? <laughs> no. Uh, but this, this feels like an, a fully inspired artist. Um, but uh, you, I take it you liked it. Oh, no. I, it, it, yeah, I love this movie. And I think that it's because maybe because some of the a lot of the movies he made since this have not kind of had the same bite to it. Mm-hmm. It was really nice to see something that was so kind of raw and sort of, uh, you know, th- that this kind of art from him as opposed to more like he made movies that are good after this, but like to oh, yeah. see something so personal to him and to really try to analyze himself in this way, he kind of doesn't do that again after this. Like this is it. <laughs> so it's, I uh, mean, I like his, I really, there are some of these films after that I like, like I really like sweet and low down. Well, I don't, I think sweet and low down is great. And I have a weird fondness for the curse of the Jade Scorpion. It's just, I, love that movie but i wouldn't put it on any list of, i know people don't uh, there, there's a lot of people who don't like it but until he starts working with scarlett johansson he doesn't feel inspired again until <laughs> the 2000s and then scoop and cassandra's dream and vicky christina barcelona all feel like this weird little pocket of Kind of like the De Niro Scorsese thing, or the De Niro, yeah, yeah. or the DiCaprio Scorsese thing, when a director finds an actor, and I, and if you have you seen those films? No, I stopped watching Woody Allen movies after Melinda Melinda. I never said anything after. Oh, uh, there he's <laughs> so there's twenty years that I have I have to catch up on. Well, I would uh, I, if I was going to focus on anything, I would definitely focus on those three because there's a richness. She's doing stuff that she doesn't get to do in most films. Uh, yeah, that I think that's pretty. That's a pretty <laughs> exceptional one. And I also am fond of Irrational Man. I think that's, oh, that's yeah. Good. I heard that's interesting. Well, back to this movie. Okay. Uh, he it's it, it's fascinating because he clearly this is a very personal project for him. But originally, maybe because it got too personal, right? He didn't want to be the star of this originally. I was reading about it. And he, he pitched it to so many other actors who all turned it down. <laughs> yeah. And I can't even imagine this movie. Like, I guess uh, Dustin Hoffman was going to be one. That could have worked. Nichol- Jack Nicholson. Not. No. No. Dennis Hopper. No. <laughs> Woody. And then, fi- and then finally, Albert Brooks, which I see could totally see happening. Okay. And then I guess Albert Brooks was like, no, no, you should do this, Woody. Because this is you, a, you should be the yeah. star. And then, thankfully, he did because like, I think this still would have been a good movie. But the fact that it is him, it's it's like it just makes it so much oh. stronger. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like I can't even imagine. Like it would have been fine with Dustin Hoffman or whatever. But like then that doesn't have the same no. reading and the same impact. Especially like we'll talk about it, but like especially the end. So like the fact that it's him, that's what seals the deal. Clearly, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so let let's start uh, picking this apart and praising it because there's so there's so much and it's one of those movies that jumps around a lot and so it's it's like there's so many little pockets to talk about I don't even know where to begin. Okay, so th- there's just there, there's a few points that 
just sort of more general points that I want to get into before we start. Just I think we're just going to walk through this film because I think that's the only way to do it because the story is so fractured and the fracturing is part of what makes it yeah. interesting. But one thing that struck me watching this that I was not aware of in 1997 is how much it feels like there's a feedback loop between deconstructing Harry and Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't at the time I wasn't aware of Larry David. Maybe I wasn't even that aware of Larry David, to be honest. I was aware no, of Seinfeld no, and I probably had it, but he, it was before Curb Your Enthusiasm. And so I didn't remember that he was in other Woody Allen films. But watching this, first of all, there's just the whole Larry Harry thing. Like Woody <laughs> Allen's playing a guy named Harry and Billy Crystal, who's another famous Harry, play in a movie <laughs> that is totally ripping off Woody Allen style movies when Harry met <laughs> Sally. And he's playing Larry, who at that time was... I'm sure for Woody Allen was incredibly successful was his sort of success. His, this guy, the schmo he used to put in his movies, who's now an incredibly rich and successful TV director or TV writer <laughs> and producer. And so, and then he has Julie, Julia Louise Dreyfus in, uh, in an early scene in it. And just something about the way that Seinfeld pushed buttons and made their character like were made their characters so unlikable and those characters were so accepted i feel all <laughs> like all of that is inspiring and informing and sort of surging underneath this film yeah yeah i can totally see that yeah <laughs> being inspired by like well these guys can play unlikable in a way maybe i can try to do the same thing and have it work uh <laughs> Also, Bob Balaban was in a big arc of Seinfeld as well. Yes. And Bob so. Balaban, uh, he plays a... Oh, he's so great in this. We'll get to that. <laughs> and then I feel like it's one of the things that is referenced throughout this film that people who haven't read Woody Allen may not pick up on is how much it's informed by his literary work. Yes. The... the the short films that are happening inside of it, they're short films and they're, you know, just their jokes or their illustrations of what's going on in this character's mind. But the style of them is very much in the style of the pieces he wrote for the New Yorker mm -hmm. and uh, in books like Getting Even Without Feathers and Side Effects. And so uh, people who are inspired by that might want to go check out those books but uh, that that's one of the I feel like Woody Allen's bringing all of this stuff from all of his films into this. And that's yeah. one of the aspects. And I love those short stories in this and like the one with <laughs> Tobey Maguire and death. Yeah, that I think there is a short story that is more or less that there is a short story he wrote or play where a guy's visited by death. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Harvey Stern married too young mainly to get out of his parents' apartment, which was a rent-controlled cornucopia of guilt, antagonism, and soul-deadening criticism. By day, he labored listlessly in a shoe store. By night, he glowed intensely over his Remington portable. Are you coming to bed? Rosalie, I'm in the middle of a sentence, and now I'm just I lost feeling my a little breath. rejected because we never sleep together anymore. 
I don't know what it is. I'm just not attracted to her. She's doing something to put you off. You know, it's my fault, too. And I lie to her. I tell her that, that I'm, I'm too wrapped up in work, but the opposite is true. I'm hyper-sexually aroused, just not for her. Who for, then? Anyone else. She has a sister. I'm dying to fuck her. A doll, thick lips. Her friend from Columbia, Jennifer, I dream of her. I never thought I could care about African history, but she's spellbinding. The truth is, I never meet or see a woman that I don't wonder what it would be like in bed with her. I met a great hooker. A hooker? Yeah, beautiful. From China. It's an unbelievable body. Schooled by tradition in the art of pleasing men. It's 50 clams. Wouldn't you be cheating on your wife? No, it's not cheating. She's a hooker. It's not like I'm having a love affair. Say, you don't feel for a professional girl the way you do for your wife. She comes over, rubs on her oils. Oils? Into the sack, she takes you to the moon. You lay half a C note on her and she's history. I don't know, where would you do it? I mean, I couldn't have her come back to my apartment. You get a hotel room. That's what I do when the wife's home. No, see, no, see, I don't have that kind of dough. I mean, 50's a lot in itself. You know? Maybe a friend will let you use his place. Hey, kid, you're always bitching about your sex life. I'm trying to help. And I just tell her that you gave me the number. Oh, no, 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 not my name. Don't use your real name. Oh, no, of course, not the real yeah, name. Tell you what you do. You borrow a friend's apartment, you use his name, that way it'll be on the bell. Now good fortune smiled on Harvey as one of his closest friends, Mendel Birnbaum, was hit by a car and lay hovering between life and death at New York Hospital, thus freeing up a great bachelor apartment for Harvey's tryst. Donning the other man's silk robe, Harvey became the swinger Mendel Birnbaum and awaited his oriental passport to paradise. You must be Mendel Birnbaum. kidding me? I will be right back. Where are you going? I'm gonna go check my pants and see if I can find another 50. I'd like to go again. Yes? Yes? Open. Who is it? I've come for you. What are you talking about? I'm death, and your name is on my list. No, no, no. Wait a minute. You, uh, you made a mistake. You don't have a minute. No, see, I'm not Mendel Burp. Don't give me that bullshit. Look at your monogram. Mendel? Who are you talking to? No, stop calling me Mendel, please. I'm just using his pad. Right. They always have an excuse. Let's go. Move it, little putz. And, and, that, and it's, I feel like this is since, the first time since everything you want to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask it, where we saw this sort of 
way of Woody Allen telling a story, like th these little snippets of the short stories, like so many or all of the little stories in this could totally have been in that movie. You know, <laughs> the guy trying to get laid using the, the friend's apartment, like the couple having sex uh, in front of the blind lady. Those all feel like bits that could have been in everything you want to know about sex. So in a way, it's like that return to that kind of old comedy that people have always complained about that he kind of bailed on dropped into this very <laughs> raw emotional, uh, you know, study of his own self. <laughs> like you get the best of both with this movie, <laughs> get new Woody and old Woody. And then uh, the other thing, and well, I guess I'll see, we'll see how we address this, but this film has so many Mias. It's just like there, he is, uh, all right. Have you ever worked on a project after a relationship ended and you're not, you're just working stuff out from whatever the trauma of the relationship or the breakup is. And there, and since this is one that happened all like in, in front of all of us all in front of us all, uh, I couldn't help, but but project that onto it. And there are some places where, and we'll get into it, where it's almost uh, like I, it does to my brain what it's doing to my pattern of speech right now. Like, I don't even know how to, <laughs> I just sort of like, uh, okay, I, thank you for inviting me into your, uh, into your tragic world. Did, were you aware of that while watching the film? No, who are the characters named that? Well, no, they're all that. they're all different versions. They're 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 just like all these relationships are different versions of the oh, dynamic in yeah. the Woody Mia relationship, and he's clearly yeah. working out. Uh, well, like okay, well I'll explain it as every time there's another Mia that shows up as we talk about it, I'll talk about it. So I, so. Okay, so let's let's start the reconstruction of the deconstruction of <laughs> deconstructing Harry. First off, we start off and the standard Woody Allen opening where we have jazz music and his white on black font that is trashed immediately. All of a sudden, they're playing it's it's still a jazz song. It's Annie Ross doing Twisted, which we could talk a little bit about that song later. It's pretty interesting, but Instead of just hearing the song and seeing the credits, we are seeing these quick cuts of Judy Davis getting out of a cab, furiously getting out of a cab and slamming the door over and over again. Then we go back to the music. Then we go back to the cut, back to the music, back to the cut. It's very, to me, it's very exciting. It feels like we've gone from oldie jazz to uh, some sort of jazz fusion thing. But uh how did the opening strike you? <laughs> uh, I love it. And like this, this kind of like fragmented editing, this sort of like jarring cuts continues through the whole movie. And at first I thought my DVD player was broken. <laughs> and I was like, but it's not skipping through other parts of the movie, but just in the present day scenes, it's sort of like this really rough cut. You know, these it's very new wave. It's very like jump cutty. Uh, and that keeps happening through the movie. Like, uh, and you're right. It is an exciting beginning. It is because you're just kind of thrown off because you're kind of like, 
in your little comfortable Woody Allen world of like, oh, this is how his movies start. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, this is not how he usually makes his movies. <laughs> like this kind of editing is not at all how his movies have ever been put together. Yeah. Yeah. He is, uh, he's in new territory. And this is the first of our Mia's. They live, you know, Woody Allen and Mia lived apart. And so, and in the lore of the breakup up of that relationship, there are stories of Mia storming over to Woody's place to scream at him and uh, threaten and to scream at and threaten him. And so I don't know if that was a story that was in the press at that time, but it's definitely been told many, many times in the Allen and Pharaoh lore. And whether or not it has, like the idea of living in separate places in New York and your girlfriend getting mad at you and coming over and, you know, in a cab and furiously <laughs> coming up to see you is something that is uh, maybe relatable just to people living in New York, but certainly immediately brings me into this film's conversation with Woody Allen's and Mia Farrow's very public breakup. So, but we aren't treated to this scene. We are, instead of knowing why this woman is slamming this cab door, we we go to a scene that is one of these sort of weird comic flights, but a new kind of comedy in a Woody Allen film, because as you said, we have... Julia, Julia Louise Dreyfus is at a uh, barbecue with her sister and her husband, and her sister is married to Richard Benjamin, who is a, a Woody Allen, you know, a, sort of a Woody Allen stand-in type in this film. And Julia Louise Dreyfus and uh, Julia, sorry, Julia Louise Dreyfus. Is it Louis or Louise? I have no idea. I think it's Louis. Okay, Julia, Julia Louis Dreyfus is having an affair with Richard Benjamin, and this this feels way more like your buddy Blake Edwards <laughs> than a Woody Allen scene. We have blowjobs, we have panties falling down, yeah, like a, the shot of the panties. Like it all feels very so much more not lurid in a porn way, but in a lurid in a in more of a West Coast comedy. <laughs> kind of way than a new york comedy kind yeah of way. and if, if this was two years later you could totally see this gag in like american pie honestly yes <laughs> yeah and More then crassly in that movie but like here it definitely feels that kind of like uh like a oh you're in porky's territory a little bit <laughs> and, and not a bad that's not a bad thing yeah well yeah yeah yes and and also don't you do you feel the blake edwards thing like with Definitely. the old lady and yeah. like there have there's a blind uh the their aunt or their grandmother is blind and she walks <laughs> in on them having sex and they're uh they're making sex sounds but trying to cover it up as if i should just play a little bit of the clip i'll play the clip you'll see I'm ready. Oh, oh. Leslie, is that you? Oh, can you lead me down to the lake, honey? 
Can you give me just a minute, Grandma? I'm just, um, I'm just making some martinis. Sure, sure, dear. I want to finish. Oh, Ken! Is that you? <laughs> finish what? Hello, hello. Come, Ken. Come. Come, lead me down to the lake. Ever since I lost my second eye, I feel so frail. Oh, 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 oh. You don't have to moan about it. It's not that terrible. Ken is hurrying, Grandma. He is hurrying. Would you do the olives, Ken? Could you do them quickly? Yeah. Oh, you know, you can use onions, too. I prefer onions, don't you, Ken? Yes, 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 yes. Boy, you must really love onions. So yeah, yeah that it, seems it like it has that like you could see Dudley Moore doing this in ten or Burt Reynolds and Man Who Loved Women or Skin Deep with John Ritter like this definitely feels like eighties yes like when when Blake Edwards turned to the R rated like sex comedy filmmaker for sure so then this sets up the scene that we played to start this off which I think is just. Uh, is is one of one of the best scenes ever on film i think i just it's so great judy davis comes in and just uh lays into woody allen's harry for divulging so much of their affair turns so the julia louis dreyfus character in the film that we saw which we saw which we now know is a short story is a, or is a a story in Harry's new book that she is based upon Judy Davis and this has outed her to her sister and her husband and she is furious as we heard so talk about this Brian <laughs> what do you love about Ju- it? Judy Davis is just so good like the fact that she has never won an Oscar for any of her brilliant performances like she is one of the great actresses and I feel people maybe for, have forgotten that because she's not in things as much and she made the Hollywood mistake of turning 40 or whatever. And so like, she's not allowed in things, but like she's just so good. And she's just like the way she uses profanity that we just heard earlier in the show. And just like, she was on a roll in the nineties. Like she, from, from Barton Fink to Naked Lunch to this. Uh, and then I think she's really good in Celebrity a year later uh, she's just so great. And just like what we talked about when we talked about Nicole Kidman a, a year ago, she's Australian. So even in movies where she is just, you know, not putting on a crazy character, she's still really acting because this isn't her voice. This is a made up voice. This is an American voice. This is not her voice. And <laughs> and it's just I feel like for the first time in I can't remember, this is like a really, really great Oh, just like Woody Allen really having a really great woman character, woman role in this in this movie. I think that didn't really happen in Everyone Says I Love You So Much. But like since Mighty Aphrodite, I guess, like you have like this great character that he's willing to just let tear him down <laughs> from Wait, the get go. Oh, uh, 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 I, I got I to gotta, I gotta back up here for a second. Uh there was an actress who was at, who was sort of at the center of most of his films for the ten years previous to this. Do you, do you, remember, do you know what her name was? <laughs> Diane Keaton. No, Mia Farrow was <laughs> was the star and the central figure in almost all of these films. 
to say that Judy Davis is like the rare case of him giving a great role to an actress is a, is kind of unfair. Almost every <laughs> one of his films. But I mean, like Bullets Over time, Broadway like in, gives it to uh, Diane Weist. Uh, Nothing really in Everyone Says I Love You. No, Everyone like, Says I Love You is his worst film. So let, that's... Yeah, so like, since the one before... Like, this is a guy who makes a movie a year. So I can say within the three years of this movie being made... Mighty least, Aphrodite won an Academy Award. It was an Academy Award winning performance for that made a star out of its lead actress. Uh, just want to be clear about that. And that's uh, Mira Sorvino. Yeah, I mean, Woody Allen is the only guy who was writing roles for middle-aged actresses that didn't just make them be moms or mother-in-laws or whatever. Just let's, 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 I'm surprised I have to make this case, but I, I, I feel I must. <laughs> Judy Davis is one in a long line of amazing roles for adult women that he wrote going back to love and death for any for uh, uh, Diane Keaton and so anyway, uh, you feel free to rebut if you must. <laughs> I think in my mind I was just thinking of everyone says I love you a year before where there's no great female character in that movie. Yeah, that's a terrible film. Uh, <laughs> so uh, no, you get no you get no argument from me there. But the language in this scene again we're just like the blowjobs and the panties and the sort of raunchier sex comedy stuff going on in the the little comedy movie judy davis is you know is calling him retarded he's calling her a worthless mishugana cunt uh, they're referring to shrinks and lawyers and whores we're seeing woody allen drinking which he does i don't think he does i've seen it like his character is usually like i don't drink or smoke pot i you know i'm uh, you know but we here germ. He, yeah here he is <laughs> like this is uh we are i don't know if we're behind the curtain we're behind a curtain and then the question is is this is this woody is this the real woody or is woody playing like what's he doing what's going on here and through this, she tears, you know, you already heard this, but she tears into his, uh, his art and how his art is cruel and uses people. And I feel like that must be the real true. To me, that's the part that feels true. Like uh, the critique that he is leveling against himself, against himself as the writer and director of this evisceration of him or his character. And I think that anyone who, I mean, I know I've had that experience where I use art to heal something that's hurt for me personally. But in that, in doing that, when the art comes out, if anyone pays attention to it, it might hurt the person who I was writing about. Have you had that experience? No, I tend to not get personal in anything that I do. <laughs> I, I would never make a deconstructing Harry, at least not yet. I purposely go the other way. <laughs> okay. So I can't, because I'm so f afraid of offending anyone I know that I, I just don't. I've never written or tried to make anything about like relationships or anything that actually affected me personally in that way. Wow. But I can imagine that it's hard for someone to do that. 
I mean, you've probably, I'm guessing, written many songs that are about real people. And <laughs> there's got to be that one point where you're like, what if, I wonder if they'll hear this. <laughs> I wonder if they'll read this. I wonder if they'll see this. And you got to just, you know, if you're brave enough, you just go through with it and just be like, well, this is how I got to deal with this. This is how an artist deals with their feelings or with, you know, just trying to figure themselves out. So it's it's a it's a rare thing, I think, for someone to do it well, because <clears throat> usually it gets a little self-indulgent. But like, I think if you're a good artist, you can you can pull it off. And then maybe hopefully the people that you're making the thing about will be OK. <laughs> Well, and process their feelings their way. <laughs> it's funny. I read in the Wikipedia that I think Roger Ebert suggested that this was not so much about Woody, but it was about Philip Roth. I heard that too, but I don't know anything about Philip Roth. Uh, so. Well, what you were saying, it made me think of there's a Philip Roth line that I've heard that he said or wrote, and I don't know if it's true. So perhaps it's apocryphal. But... Someone asked him, well, you write, your writing is so personal. How does your family deal with that? And he says, oh, well, when a writer's born into the family, that family's over. <laughs> Hilarious. That's so good. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I definitely subscribe more to that style of writing. Uh, and the Woody <laughs> Allen thing of using, it's really, it's like, we'll get to it, but I think the ultimate point of this film is that art can save your life, but it will then mess your life up again. So it's a, it's sort of a devil's bargain. Mm -hmm. So at uh we we get out of this scene and i it, the way that we get in and out of scenes in this that that's the editing uh susan morse i believe yeah susan morse is the editor she's fantastic on this she was a longtime collaborator with woody allen and so we get out of this because uh judy davis pulls a gun she's gonna shoot herself then she's gonna shoot him and then he She's like, she's about to kill him. And he goes on talking about how terrible his life is. She, you know, she'd be putting him out of his misery. And she's like, you're probably writing something. And he immediately, like any, like, like an artist goes from being terrified to being like, I think you'd like the idea. And he goes in and then we have, we go to the Tobey Maguire short film. Tobey Maguire is great in this. He doesn't have a lot to do, but it just reminds me of why I really liked him as an actor back yeah. then. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's a short story about a guy who is just super horny in the 50s <laughs> and doesn't and is having a hard time in a, with uh, expressing that. And he works in a shoe store and his his f colleague tells him that he can hire a hooker for 50 bucks. And he, he's down with paying the 50 bucks, but renting a hotel he can't do. But he gets his friend Mendel Birnbaum to lend him his hotel. <laughs> and uh, this is a it, there's a uh, an Asian prostitute shows up dressed a highly orientalized uh, <laughs> stereotyped character of an Asian woman shows up described as the oriental passport to paradise and uh, I, I had a hard time, you know, because I, I think any time 
I try not to watch Woody Allen's films for evidence of his wrongdoings, but I know that other people do. So I watch his films <laughs> looking for evidence of his wrongdoings to try and either defend <laughs> or acknowledge. And with this one, I'm trying to figure out, is this is this just what the 50s was like? <laughs> and that's how, you know, people were coded? Or is that, you know, there's something... What? How did it, it is, land it for is, you? Thing is, it's funny because I did not read this part as being the fifties, so I totally missed that. <laughs> I did that didn't register me that it was the nineteen fifties. To me, I thought it was just you know a fictional version of the nineties. Uh, uh, I'm pretty sure that even in the nineties, <laughs> women weren't selling their bodies for fifty dollars. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't <laughs> in the market then, but. <laughs> But uh, it it is yeah it is sort of like and we'll talk about this with another character it is sort of a little too bad that like you don't really get a lot of Asian people in Woody Allen movies and then this is the what what you get and like there is definitely this is not the first time he's kind of leaned into that Orientalism yep of like because we went on the director's wall the other podcast that we did New York stories and in that there's a white guy dressed up as like a, an Asian magician. <laughs> kind of doing Asian face, doing this sort of stereotypical kind of like, you know, little show for his magic trick. Uh, and I think he's done that kind of character more than once. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the white guy playing the Asian magician. Uh, and other than like, what's up, Tiger Lily, which <laughs> is not people he hired because <laughs> it's a movie, a, a Japanese movie that he redubbed. Um, <laughs> there's You don't get a lot of it. <laughs> So it did, did it strike me of like, ah, oh, even in 1997, this does definitely feel kind of like out of touch. But maybe that's the point. Maybe if it's the 50s, also, if you're dealing with sex workers, a lot of them deal with fantasy and like, you know, like like women that dress up as like Catholic schoolgirls. Like Catholic schools don't really dress this way, but the prostitute version does. So maybe this is someone kind of dealing with people whose kink or fetish is kind of this this sort of version of an Asian woman, you know, um, sort of like, I don't know what you've been called this kind of like the dragon lady or whatever that kind of done up, you know, stereotypical version of an Asian woman would be called. So it, yeah, it's, it's hard to kind of read that moment as to what exactly the intention is, but the fact that it takes place within the fictional part of this movie, like this character isn't showing up in the real world of the Harry character. This is in a story he's telling. So it's a little not forgivable, but it's a little more like, oh, I kind of I'm not totally offended by it because it's within the story that the character's telling. That's not reality. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I'm I, I, I now. no, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think if I was going to say is that this on its own passes. But in general, Woody has a, you know, an antiquated and weird way of relating to Asians on film, which I'm sure his wife gives him shit about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is this like watching this with her, just being like, oh, I'm sorry. It was a different time, 1997. Uh, uh, so, well, no, but I, it is about the 50s. So I think this, like I said, this scans, but then later on, like all of his... He has a thing, and I guess this, but it's it's really hard to to parse this because I don't really know. But he has a lot of characters who go to magic shows in New York, and I feel like 
I get the impression that magic in that the magic scene in the 50s and 60s what was a lot of like this mm-hmm. secret from the far east and this one you know yeah, like yeah. that that's just sort of built yeah. into it so again I don't give him a pass like I don't want to give him a pass for his non like he should and I haven't I haven't counted all of his films for the for Asian characters. Maybe in the last twenty years, there's been better representation in his films on that level. But uh, but anyway, let's move on past this. Certainly, there are people who you know. If you have a problem with it, it's worth yes. a pause. And we've paused, and now we okay. Can go so, but anyway, the the joke is that he's at uh, Mendel Birnbaum's house to get to have this. Uh, prostitute hookup and death arrives looking for Mendel Birnbaum and the prostitute calls him Mendel Birnbaum at first he says he's Mendel Birnbaum before he knows it's death and so he gets led away by death and we are now in Woody's therapist office and he's talking to his therapist saying things like I still love whores (laughs) and it was funny because have you seen the Bob Whitey directed past, I don't know if it's called Past Masters. No, that's the name of that Beatles album. Uh, Some sort of American Masters series about directors and Bob Whitey, who directed the documentaries on Lenny Bruce and the Marx Brothers and uh, W.C. Fields, and who was a producer and director on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He directed that and as an interviewer there was something about this that reminded made me feel like in part yeah this is Woody as he's on the couch or he's in his therapist's office but the way it's filmed it also feels like a film documentary interviewer yeah so I'm standing there on the roof with her and she's pointing a gun at me and we're out there in the cold and and I'm panicked and I'm, I'm telling her about a short story I wrote when I was younger and she found it funny thank God and she she started to you know she laughed and she relaxed a little and she put the gun down and you know but uh, so your writing <laughs> saved your life it's amazing to me, you know, and, and what's so, you know, the interesting thing to me, apart from the, the obvious sexual guilt that I had when I was a young man in the story, is that nothing's changed. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, it's years later. I, it, I, I had a shrink then. I have a shrink now. It's, I'm, I'm six shrinks later. I'm three wives down the line. And, I, you know, I still can't get my love life in order. I, 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 I still love whores, you know. I... I, I, I to me, the ideal thing is you, you pay them and, and they come over the house and, and you don't have to discuss Proust or films or... I don't know what's been happening to me, you know, I... You know, you know I, I, I just have not grown up and I feel, you know, it's not... Um, you know, I, I, I see other guys my age. I mean, I'm always thinking of fucking every woman I meet. I meet a woman, whoever, on the bank, a stranger. I see a woman on the bus. I think, what would she look like naked? Is it possible I can fuck her? And, you know, this is crazy. I, 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 I see guys I, I know that are lawyers and doctors. They have families and houses. They, they, they're not so, you know, I'm, you know, does the president of the United States want to fuck every woman he may? You know, so... Bad example, you know, but, but um, I, I don't know. Look, take Raoul Wallenberg. Did he want to bang every cocktail waitress in Europe? Probably not. But And then he talks about, I guess, the, the primary dilemma of the film is that he's going to be, I don't know if this is the primary. Uh, it's the, it's one of the 
plot devices in the film is that Woody has been invited to go and be honored about his, or Harry has been invited to be honored for his writing and his films, but I think mostly for his writing. He's a writer in this. They, they, he's not a filmmaker in this film, right? He's a, he's a writer. No, he's yeah. just a writer. So he's going to be honored, and he has nobody to go with him. And the therapist suggests that he bring his son, and he talks about how he can't get visitation with his kid because his wife, another Mia, where we are for played by Kirstie Alley, is refusing to let him spend time with his son. And in talking about this, he references another one of his stories, and we are now in a world that feels like a New York story kind of world, probably because Julie Kavner's in it, where we have the mm-hmm. out-of-focus actor with Robin Williams. <laughs> so Genius. <good. laughs> Talk about it, comedy man. Uh, this was my favorite part when I first saw this movie. Uh, it was so, such a, I can't believe I never saw this in anything before. And maybe because the technology wasn't there to make it work. Cause clearly this must've been like digitally blurred, but you have Robin Williams as an, well, the, the show, the, the story starts with a camera crew trying to figure out a shot for like a movie. And they're thinking the lens is broken and they can't figure it out. And uh, then they, they're like, no, the actor is out of focus. He is out. He's an out of focus actor. And then you're seeing Robin Williams trying to talk to people and he's blurred out and nobody else is. And it's brilliant. It looks amazing. And then it just follows him home as he's getting more out of focus. His children mock him for being out of focus. <laughs> Julie Kavner's there all concerned. <laughs> it's so good. And it's just really funny to think that like, Robin Williams, finally, you've made it. You're in a Woody Allen movie, as all actors had dreamed. But we won't really get to see you because <laughs> you're going to be out of... But the fact that they cast Robin Williams, who is so, like, you can tell yeah. it's him, like, immediately from the way he talks and looks, is brilliant. You know, if it was if that was Richard Benjamin, it wouldn't have worked as well. But, <laughs> but the fact that it's him, it's just, like, it's just so funny. And it's just that, it's brilliant. It's one of the most brilliant jokes i think i've seen in any movie ever it's so it's so clever it's such a great it just works as a gag it works as a metaphor it just it's like it works on so many levels and it's just so good yeah that's what i'm talking about when i talk about the mastery on all levels like you've got a a writer who is who really knows his game and he has built for years this film crew that knows how to get his sense of humor and then is able to, so that every, you're sort of in something like that. Every little thing is firing, and there are probably things that you're not even aware of that are little decisions that are made by this crew that's been working together for decades at a very high level. And that just doesn't happen in cinema very much in America, that where an independent filmmaker is successful enough to be able to keep that high level of craftspeople working with them on every film. Like Juliet Taylor is the cat. Like we mentioned Robin Williams, Juliet Taylor, another longtime collaborator of Woody's who mm-hmm. like the casting in this film, there's a one level of casting of like, who can we get for this role? Then there's another level of casting where it's like, we can get anyone for these roles other than I guess Dustin Hoffman to play Woody Allen. But <laughs> So then who is the perfect person? And I would say right all the way through, 
the casting in this. Every time someone shows up, you're like, oh, this is so good. Like Robin Williams in this. So good. Well, and there's people in this before they were famous, but that she knew that they were great. Like, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but um, uh, Jennifer Garner. is. Oh, yeah. I I totally caught that. Like she's like she's a she's in a part in an elevator that was like a story version of a thing that really happens with Elizabeth Shue's character who we'll talk about soon, but it's just like you don't even really get to see Jennifer Garner, but you recognize her voice in like the back of her head, and then there's a young I guess what you'd say fresh faced Paul Giamatti. Oh yeah, does it? Yeah, at the very end, who shows up kind of in the crowd of professors and people at the college. He does. I think he maybe has a line. Maybe. But he does it. But like you're like, there's Paul Giamatti. Yep. Yep. Uh, Tony Sirico from The Sopranos plays a cop. Yep. Which is weird to see him as a cop now after The Sopranos being like, I don't believe he's a cop. <laughs> but you do. <laughs> he just seems like a wise guy, New York cop. And you're like, oh, this is like two years before The Sopranos, you know? And yeah. And that, and that's just the people that are like this, like not even sight. These are just background artists in a way. Like, or these are like little tiny bit roles, but then everybody else, like to think like who in 1997 is thinking of casting Richard Benjamin in anything? Nobody. Oh, <laughs> but he's great. But he's great. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, man, why was it Richard Benjamin and more things? Well, that, in the 90s? that also lends <laughs> to the Philip Roth thing, because I think wasn't. Uh, Richard Benjamin was in Goodbye Columbus based upon a Philip Roth novel. Another like there. That's what I mean. Like the casting here is like a artist, like a jazz artist or whatever, an artist playing a riff from another song into their to like to to bring that in. So like having the Harry, Larry, Billy Crystal thing and having Richard Benjamin and the Goodbye Columbus, Philip Roth angle, all of these create just huge like for the it's like a, the more you know the more you know and so when you're watching <laughs> when i'm watching this film now as opposed to in 1997 my mind is being blown on whole other levels and i'm sure if i see the film in 20 years that will still be the case because just there's just layers of subtle referencing throughout mm, so good um so shall we continue in our reconstruction? let's continue okay so <laughs> We get through the out of focus actor scene and we're back in the therapist office. And he that's when he suggests taking his kid, taking Woody's kid to the honoring. And we get a scene where Alan tracks down Kirstie Alley and she refuses to let him spend time with his son. The kid will have a day in the country. What is so bad? He is nine years old. Where does he learn phrases like banging beaver and fuck God? What are you saying, from me? Oh, what do I look like, an imbecile? I know what your conversations are like with him, and don't think I didn't hear about open school week. Beth Kramer has never been so appalled in her entire life. Dad, why doesn't my penis look like yours? Why doesn't your penis look like mine? Because your mother and I never had you circumcised. When I was your age, every kid in my neighborhood, you know what they used to do? They used to name their penises. I'm going to name mine Dillinger. Dillinger is perfect. Dillinger is great. Hilly, you're inspired. You're a genius. Dillinger was one of the great geniuses of his chosen profession. Maybe like Willie Sutton. You remember we discussed Freud once? Well, Freud said that the, the two most important things to having a good life are 
the work that you choose and sex. Those are the two things. Women are God. God's a woman? No, I'm not saying God's a woman. Because, let me put it this way. There are women. We don't know if there's a God, but there are women. You know, not in some imaginary heaven, but right here on Earth. And some of them, Hilly, some of them <clears throat> shop at Victoria's Secret. Beth Kramer has never been so mortified in her entire life. Beth Kramer's an aggressive, tight-ass, busybody cunt, and it's none of her fucking business how I speak to my son. Beth Kramer is a decent parent and a great friend. Oh, bullshit. Look, I'm asking you to change one visitation day. What is so terrible? I don't know. He is not going to miss a day of school. What if he was sick? If, if Hilly was sick, he would miss school. Yes, if Hilly was sick, he would miss school. But he is not sick, and he's not going to spend it the afternoon with his pill-popping, alcoholic, beaver-banging excuse for a father. You know, years ago, you didn't say that about me. You didn't think that. You were a nice, loose, easygoing oh, put spirit. put it in a book. <laughs> what am I saying? You already did. In the background of this, we have Mariel Hemingway, another amazing bit of casting, overhearing and just being mortified by this horrible conversation that Woody is having with his son and then reporting it back to Kirstie Alley. And this is why she won't let him see their son. And this, again, feels so much like a comment on... Woody's troubles with Mia. That did. Yeah. That didn't strike you. No, that did. Yeah. Oh, her name is Beth Kramer. Uh, sorry, Beth Kramer. I wonder if that's a Kramer versus Kramer reference. Anyway, I'm looking or, for references. or another Seinfeld reference. Oh yeah, another Seinfeld. <laughs> You're right. Uh, oh, I could totally see uh, her being with Kramer. Like that would be this a great <laughs> surprise. But of course, Mariel Hemingway, we know from Manhattan. And she mm-hmm. is used often as uh, as evidence of Woody's, uh, you know, purported predilections to young women. And even then, it's not the same. Being attracted to young women is not the same as being a pedophile. But whatever, we're not. We're, ugh, I'm, I, I promised you we wouldn't go into all of this. And I'm trying as much <laughs> as I can to skate around it. Uh, but... This film just throws all of that in there. And yeah. yeah. And I think that's just it's funny because in talking about this, you've outed we've found out that we are very, very, very different kinds of artists. Is like that's exactly what I try to do in all of my work. For you as someone <laughs> who doesn't, did it make you uncomfortable? The scene? Yeah. No, I think I'm I'm okay with other people doing it. <laughs> I think it's a different thing being, I mean, no one's ever done it to me. Like as far as I know, no one's made art about, you know, how terrible I am yet. But, uh, <laughs> but like, I, uh, I think being an artist trying to figure out how to make something personal is different than witnessing someone. Else. I actually really love it when, people do this with their art and in fact like we we've talked about this before we talked about this on the brown bunny episode that like it's more admirable for an artist to be like yeah i'm a piece of shit (laughs) as opposed to pretending you're great you know and you're perfect and flawless and (laughs) and you're you're an innocent person you know and i think just having someone make a piece where you're like oh no i i am a scumbag and this is how i'm a scumbag like this (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, and and I think that 
it doesn't mean I want to have dinner with this person in real life, maybe, but it makes me, I think, respect them more as an artist than someone who's lying about how perfect they are, you know, and I won't name names of artists that do that, but there are where they like, we know who they are in real life, but then they pretend to put on this image of how, you know, they aren't like that. And I think the ones that steer into it, you know, I think that's, that's more, that's a, that's an art that's more worth talking about in my opinion, because then there's something really just, there's something really, you know, just, there's a lot, there's more to unpack there and there's more to, you know, just dissect and just think about and like, and whether you like the person or not who was making it, I think it just makes for a more just in-depth, you know, conversation. It's, <laughs> which is what art should do. <laughs> and I think we, we kind of like this movie, we keep running to these movies on our show. I think these movies tend to repel a lot of people like movies that are this honest, like people would probably rather watch everyone says I love you or celebrity over deconstructing Harry because it is uncomfortable to be somebody to see somebody kind of open up their brain and their heart and just be like, this is how I am unapologetically. <laughs> well, but even in this one, like this scene that we're talking about, it's actually a very wholesome scene between a father and yeah. a son. Like that's the, exactly the kind of conversation. Like if it was a mother talking to her daughter about, their vaginas that would be a total that's a totally appropriate conversation and if there was some dude sitting in the table next to being like oh 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 i'm so offended it would be clear that that guy was in the wrong yeah and i don't know there's something about this scene that i it it got me on this level of like oh yeah this is a dynamic that woody is experiencing or at least feels like he's experiencing in his own life, but it also makes this other, I don't know, important point. Like, when do you have see a movie where a father, a Jewish father is talking to his son about circumcision? Yeah, which you know hap has to happen, I think, yeah. at some point. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and the fact that it is Mariel Hemingway cast, which is so intentional, and it's another layer. To the, you know, it's just like this movie keeps having, it's like this movie's like an onion. You keep peeling it back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's more and more to, to pull out of it, you know? Yep. Yeah. And even that, like the, the character that she's brought back as is the character who is furious about Manhattan now. <laughs> it's just, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Uh <laughs> And fantastic that she chose to come back and do that and play the role. Like that speaks to yeah. a certain comfort with Woody Allen. But what we find out is that Kirstie Alley's character, although she's using what Beth Kramer said about Harry to deny him access to his son... It's actually that she's hurt because just like Judy Davis was, she's mad at something he wrote. And now we're in a new story. In this story, we have Stanley Tucci. I thought you'd love it. <laughs> Stanley Tucci. He's Jewing it up. The Italian Jew, Stanley Tucci. Uh, 
<laughs> is there with Demi Moore. I love these scenes. And I have a little sidebar here. Not just because they were shot in an apartment that I stayed in in New York. Whoa. Yeah, my, some friends of my mom got this amazing apartment in the early 60s, and they kept it up through the early 2000s. And it was massive. And uh, in the 90s, they shot the therapist scenes for this movie in there. Wow. But just a little bit of bragging, my my weird brush with Woody Allen. That also sounds bad. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and well, I'll, I'll describe this scene. So in this bit of comedy... Demi Moore is a therapist who's seeing Stanley Tucci and she determines that they should stop seeing each other as therapist and client and that they should start seeing each other as a couple. And then they do and then they have a kid and then she starts to become super Jewish. She wants to have their kid circumcised and he doesn't it's funny in this like woody who we we're, we're getting more deconstruction of woody because we find out that woody is anti-circumcision that he mocks judaism and that he is dubious about the integrity of therapy uh all things that he's pretty like he's not particularly associated with circumcision circumcision but with jewishness uh but anyway the joke of this is that she becomes a very, very devout Orthodox Jew and then starts an affair with an Israeli patient, leaving (laughs) Stanley Tucci, kicking him out. And this is the story that infuriates Kirstie Alley, although we'll find out that there's more that infuriates her as as we continue. So here we, we go from this to the appearance of, I'm sure one of your favorite people to show up in this film, Bob Balaban. Oh, man. When he meets Bob Balaban <laughs> on the street. This guy, does his heart rate ever get above? Like, I can't imagine this guy could have a heart attack because I can't imagine <laughs> his heart speeding up because he, he is the <laughs> mellowest guy on the planet, Bob Balaban. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he does, he's so, he is one of the great, like, deadpan comedians he's just so yeah anytime balaban shows up in anything it's just it just kind of brings it up a notch it's just it's so good he's so good he's a really good reactor just because you can say <laughs> whatever and then he just like the way he just sort of is deadpan you know his response to think is so funny or the way he'll deliver lines it's uh <laughs> i forgot he was in this movie <laughs> <laughs> just him going when they go to the doctor together that's just hilarious to think to think about like what if woody allen who's usually plays this notorious hypochondriac goes to the doctor with very mellow bob balaban to see if bob balaban's doing okay <laughs> yeah because okay. bob balaban he's like i'm having severe chest pains really are you are you should go like woody allen's like oh, you should go to the hospital he's like eh, maybe i think like he's so mellow uh, and, uh, and he gets like, the, this is like the first, I feel like the first character we've met who feels like they like and get Woody, like everyone yeah. is mad at him or, or a character in one of his stories, but everyone we've met is pretty furious at him. 
And here we meet someone who's just like a a calm respite from all of this chaos. Of course, he has he's having heart, he's having chest pains, but uh, he uh, so of course, what he's like, well, would you come to the honoring with me? He's like, you, it's so it's kind of pathetic. Like he's he's just asking anyone now, so he doesn't have to go and be honored on his own. It really kind of reminded me of of Andy Dick. Who I, you know, we've talked about. He's a, a friend of mine, and you, and just like, there's a kind of thing when very famous, successful people, and you you hang out with them, and you realize, oh, they're just desperately not wanting to be alone. And I get it, you know. I would desperately not want to be alone too if I could avoid it. <laughs> but uh, when you're not famous, it's really you you have to get used to being alone. Uh, but when you're famous for your whole life. It's harder. Anyway, um, another sidebar. We'll keep moving through this. Now, I think that Balaban says he can't come, that he's busy, right? Yeah, I think that's what he says. Yeah. (laughs) So then we move into a full-on Annie Hall territory, the Elizabeth Shue story, where now we are introduced to Harry's problems with the young woman who he he has a he has the Annie Hall he's having the Annie Hall relationship with her he tells her not to love Mm -hmm. him and so she doesn't fall in love with him which is exactly what Woody told Diane Keaton in Annie Hall and I believe no no it's what he told Mariel Hemingway in Manhattan I'm getting it all confused in the deconstruction there's a way that this film also feels like being john malkovich to me like proto being john malkovich the way it just it disorients you with this kind Mm -hmm. of referencing Mm -hmm. um did you pick up on the annie hall manhattan factor in the elizabeth shoe relationship yeah yeah for sure it has it has that it definitely that relationship is has more of that feel than any of the other ones in this movie. And I think it's the healthiest of his relationships in the weirdest way with a woman in this in this movie. Well, yeah, there's a even there's though, sort even of a manic really pixie dream girl Woody <laughs> Allen style to it. Like Yeah, like Mariel Hemingway is the most is supposedly the most mature, healthy relationship he has in Manhattan. What I kept being struck with was how was Elizabeth Shue's hair. <laughs> did, you, did you notice Elizabeth Shue's hair in this film? Uh, what, what, what about it? Well, as particularly in the elevator from behind, that's Mia. It, it, they totally gave her Mia Farrow hair. And so that this is our third Mia in this film. So we have, uh, we have Judy Davis as the angry girlfriend slamming the car door and coming and yelling at him and threatening him. We have Kirstie Alley, the co-parent who is making it difficult for you to see your kid because they're angry at you because of one thing while saying they're angry at you because of another. And then we have Elizabeth Shue, sort of the idealized Mia, like I don't I don't I'm I, I don't know exactly how she's a Mia in this film, except that the hair is so clearly Mia, uh, particularly in that elevator scene. And we'll get to it because I think that ele- elevator scene, even though it's very short, is incredibly important in this movie. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I, 
I, I, I since you didn't pick up on it, you probably don't have anything to say about it. But uh, do you have anything to say about the shoe relationship other than that it seems like a, a better deal than uh, his his affair <laughs> with his his wife's sister? <laughs> No, I mean, but she's the only one who doesn't, you know, really scream and yell at him. Yeah. So <laughs> she just leaves him for Billy Crystal. A... Yeah, and you can't argue that. <laughs> well, I'll leave you for Billy Crystal. <laughs> uh, not me. I'll stick with Woody. I'll stick with Woody. No offense, Billy, but. Uh... Well, you can talk about baseball. Uh, you can talk stuff, about baseball you know? with Woody Allen. He loves baseball. Yeah, I guess that's true. He talks about it in this film. There's three (laughs) things he loves in life. His kid, baseball, and I forget what the other thing is. Maybe it's jazz, uh, which you could not tell based upon everyone says I love you. But uh, (laughs) so then after this, so this whole little segment, it's it's all squashed in. There's uh, him hanging out with Elizabeth Shue then they're shopping for a present for his kid and they run into Billy Crystal, who we know is going to they're going to end up together. Uh, Elizabeth Shue and the and Billy Crystal as Larry. Um, and then we see Woody Allen, the black magician at work, writing about he's working out his problems with this, writing about the devil taking his girl. And then we have this. What looks like one of has to be one of the most expensive scenes in a Woody Allen film. Yeah. Where he goes to hell and this representation of hell is like, whoa, what? I've, I've never seen Woody Allen build a set like this. Have you? Yeah. It's, it's a, no, it's it's definitely very striking because like the whole movie, too. It's like even with the editing being weird, it still feels like a Woody Allen movie where it's a lot of apartments. You're in a car. You're maybe on the city street. And even the other stories that we see are in apartments or maybe a, like a lake house. This is like the most extravagant. But they go to this, which is like a big set, which has got it has to be the biggest set that's ever been built for a Woody Allen movie. Walls and of bodies. Hell, there's walls of just greasy, naked bodies, like naked, greased up people just like just in pain. There's a part where they're kind of in this big bubbling vat of water. And uh, it's very exciting. <laughs> And then you go into the devil's office, which is like this really nice, you know, fancy place. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the the dialogue here is really good between the devil, Billy Crystal and Harry Woody Allen, just talking about like, oh, you've never, have you ever been with two women at the same time? And I'd be like, oh yeah, like, oh, they're both here. And just kind of going through all these <laughs> weird perversions and, and the devil's like, oh, have you ever had sex with a blind woman? And just like, they're all their little... <laughs> Well, yeah, it's it's one of those things where Woody <laughs> All Allen perversions yeah. in. So I love this. This goes. This is a metaphor for the film. So he's writing the story to go after the guy who he's portraying as the devil in his story to steal his girl back. But when he gets there, he finds in his art that he has more in common with the devil than with the woman he's trying to rescue from his clutches. And yeah, again, (laughs) to me, the actions of an innocent man, an innocent man proclaims his guilt uh, is, 
at least in in art. And again, you can say, well, maybe it's a clever person. You know, I I don't even want to get into like that. But what if when I do it, that's what I aspire to is to like go into a work of art where my goal is to work out my anger or my frustration with some external thing. And once I get into it and the magic of the creation starts to flow, what I find Mm -hmm. is that I have just as much in common with the thing that I hate as the character that's doing the hating. And then I have to, then this wonderful alchemy happens where in the world of art, these things get reconciled and worked out. And then someone else may look at it and be like, oh, he's saying he's the devil. It's like, no, you're a small-minded <laughs> person. This is what artists, what creative people do. We dig in and we try and create that alchemy and not for your, for the viewer's benefit, but for the benefit of the person who's trying to reconcile something in their life that they can't in the real world. So you have to work it out in a song or a story or a film. Hopefully it's not a film because that takes a long, long time. <laughs> Song you can write in a day, story you can write in a day. Anyway, so he's interrupted. I don't know if he's interrupted from his uh, writing or he takes a break from his writing to hire a prostitute. And we are introduced to Cookie Williams. Cookie. Let's talk about Cookie. <laughs> Finally, a black character in a Woody Allen <laughs> movie. I don't know if that's actually true. It's the first one, but let's just say, in general, uh, for the sake of the this first argument, one I can yeah, think of, it's not. It's it's a fair enough point that even if it isn't specifically true, it is generally true, and so let's treat it as such. Yeah, uh, she's great. I think she's great in it. I love the scenes with them. There's some fantastic lines. Uh, I've been talking too much. Brian, talk about these this scene. <laughs> uh, I think it's it's great because it starts out <laughs> with a really good joke of him trying to explain to her how he wants to be uh, tied up, then whipped, then get a blowjob. Tied up, then hit. She, hit. T- tied up, hit, then a blowjob. And then she keeps rearranging the order being, okay, so I'm going to do it. He's like, no, 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 it has to be this order. And then jump cut to them done and his shirts in tatters, which is <laughs> <laughs> a really good gag. And then you think, you kind of think that this is going to be it, but then he decides to invite her to go along uh, with him to this uh, award that he's getting, this this big honor ceremony. Uh, but, but worth mentioning, the actress's name is Hazel Goodman. Uh, I, she shows up in, uh, she was in Hannibal. She's in heat. She's not in a lot of things, um, but she's she's very good here. Did, did you like? <laughs> I love the thing. The thing about it beats waitressing. She's, she says, it. and then him being like, every prostitute says that, and he's like, "Gosh, waitressing must be like the worst job ever." <laughs> if, if everybody's rather be a prostitute than do that, uh, true. Um, <laughs> But uh, you, but what happens is she becomes one of the main characters for the rest of the movie, basically, because he invites her along uh, to go to this award thing, and then of course on their way out, 
Balaban decides he does want to come. Yeah, so great. Everyone in the in the <laughs> so movie is like, "Oh yeah, we're all just as happy to see him as Woody is." Like, I know it's like this is going to be great because you weren't expecting him to come back. So then you have Cookie and Balaban in the car, and then of course Balaban jokingly says, "Like, oh, it's too bad you can't just like kidnap your son." And Harry's like, "Okay, let's let's do it." And then. The kidnapped son is part of the entourage going like this is could be a whole other movie on its own. Just these these uh, four characters. I was getting some major nothing but trouble vibes off of this. (laughs) (laughs) It was crazy. But I felt like the lighting. I'm sure he wasn't referencing nothing but trouble, but it felt like it so much did did they take the short kind of old coke road on their way to the college no but they they're taking i mean he's popping pills and drinking <laughs> so here we have woody allen he's popping pills and drinking he's driving to go be honored with a prostitute his, bob balaban and his kidnapped son and you're right a movie that starts here is i'm very excited about <laughs> Yeah, and it's just a great turn that this movie kind of takes here because then this is sort of the rest of the movie. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's brilliant. <laughs> so at some point in this, I think it's Cookie, like they, they stop to get ice cream or they stop for something. Oh, no, they stop at a carnival. They see a little roadside <laughs> carnival, you know, Woody Allen's world. And he wants to take his son to go for a ride on whatever, some on some of the rides. And while he's doing that, Cookie smokes a joint and Woody is standing next to her and he catches a contact high. And he starts, this is when we start to get into shadows and fog kind of land. He started, it's sort of... Uh, it, also like a Ghosts of Christmas Past thing. So his characters start showing up to talk to him and give him advice, particularly Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Richard Benjamin. And they're showing him, I guess in this case, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is talking with Harry about how much he hurt Judy Davis and she shows Harry the moment when Judy Davis finds out that he is not leaving his wife, Amy Irving, wife of another famous Jewish director. Uh, another reference Steven here. Spielberg. Spielberg. Yeah. The moment when that. So Judy Davis thinks that Harry is going to be leaving Amy Irving to go with her. And. We see this amazing scene. I, this scene is ah, so good. <laughs> I mean, Amy Irving doesn't have a lot to do and she's doing fine with it. But Judy Davis, Judy Davis. is on another yeah. planet of well, just the, emo- the range of emotions her character goes through here, where it's like oh. f- at first she's hearing her sister talk about her ex-husband, uh, uh, whoever she's having an affair with in her mind is her. Yeah. You know, and so she you see this guilt and her trying to get it out, get the truth out. Like she's she, she's trying to talk about it, but she just can't quite get there. And then when the reveal is and with a much younger lady, she's like 25. Her name is this. And then when she realizes that he, she's not talking about her, that he's having an affair with another person, then she has a total 
panic attack mental meltdown and in the middle uh, of it there's a moment when she's talking about when amy irving's talking about how he talks about how this woman is so wonderful and you see judy davis she's guilty but she's also just sort of but blushing she's and she's like yeah she's oh, like oh god that like, way she's about saying, me. like yeah and then it's not of her so like to go from like guilt to the secret joy to this total like breakdown but you can't hide that you're having a breakdown but you're just you're just you're you just <laughs> it's so good again insane that she didn't get like an oscar for this movie oh. like because this is a g- amazing performance like an all-time great what she has like she's in two or three scenes and she just owns them the whole movie feels like it's vibrating on her level oh god yeah and she looks she has this sort of uh, Edward Scissorhands look to her in this film, <laughs> which I don't know makes her I don't know w- weirdly fright like this frightening, but also fragile, but also tremendously compelling. Almost like yeah, I don't know what it is. She's just yeah, star, full on star, with a writer who knows how to write great scenes for women in general. But I feel like the women, like I'm thinking of Diane Weist in Bullets Over Broadway and the don't stop, don't, don't stop. <laughs> there's, I, there's so many amazing moments for actresses in his films. So where are we in this? So I'm, I'm feeling stoned with Woody because uh, now he's <laughs> flashing back. So then he re- runs into... Richard, no, he hasn't. He doesn't go into Richard Benjamin yet. Sorry, this is when. Well, he visits his sister eventually. Yes, this is when he goes and visits his sister. Oh, by the way, I, the three things that that Woody loves in this film or Harry loves are his son Hilly, baseball, and music. I totally agree with him. Not not about Hilly, uh, about a baseball and music. <laughs> uh, I don't know. The kid's probably fine, although he grows up to be Ronan Farrow. So that's a you know that's a whole other thing. Anyway, so yes, he goes to visit his sister and Eric Bogosian, and his sister is played by Caroline Aaron. She plays his sister, and she's another. I don't think this this doesn't feel like a Mia. This feels like someone else in his maybe someone else from his life. Maybe his actual sister. Does he have a maybe sister? his actual sister? And she's mad at him because again of things he wrote and about the way he. Is critical of her Judaism, and a, a great line. She says, "You're a my husband's right. You're a self-hating Jew." He's like, "I may hate myself, but not because I'm Jewish." Which I feel like again <laughs> is sort of like the theme of this movie. Like, you think I'm terrible, but not that way. I'm terrible this way. <laughs> uh, and then we go into an amazing short story that maybe my favorite one in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like the one the 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 sheep fucking uh, episode <laughs> in from everything, everything. Yeah, everything you want to know about sex, yeah. but it starts innocently enough at a Star Wars themed bar mitzvah, <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing, and it's ama- it's amazing to see Woody Allen reference this level of pop culture because this is a guy who's usually like referencing like old pop culture like the marx brothers or some louis armstrong or whatever but to see a scene where you have like a whole bar mitzvah where like 
the caterers are dressed up as Wookiees and the band is wearing Darth Vader helmets. <laughs> and it's just like, it's so strange. It's just such an odd thing to be like, the, it's, it's, it's a weird thing of like, I know it's not true, but I just, for a second, I was like, Woody Allen knows what Star Wars is? <laughs> yeah, he, he beat it at the so Oscars. Into his own, I know, I know. But he wasn't he at those Oscars. He didn't go to those Oscars. He doesn't know. He doesn't care. But, uh, but he just seems like he's so in his way, in his way is like old jazz and baseball and stuff that like seeing Star Wars on his radar is actually, it took me back for a second. I was like, I was taken aback. I was like, whoa, a Star Wars joke. That's hilarious. And <laughs> the story is, uh old Jewish woman finds out that her husband has this dark secret. She goes to figure out what the dark secret is. The secret was that he killed a previous secret family that he had and then ate their bodies. <laughs> and this is is this the longest story of the movie? I feel like this kind of the to go to get to the punchline takes a long time. <laughs> and and uh, it's just great. And the actor, the actors and actresses, like this part, like these people, so funny, so good. <laughs> also, <laughs> whiffs of crimes and misdemeanors. Definitely. There. Definitely. We go from that to being back with Bogosian, and they're arguing. He's arguing with Woody and telling Woody how terrible he is. And uh, I think I'm just going to play this scene because it's so great. And it has that that great another great comic line in it which is you have the opposite of paranoia you have the insane delusion that people like you <laughs> so good so good and it's good to see, it's it's rare to see bogosian in a movie and he's always so good yeah like like i i love him i wish he acted more and like like this like uncut gems he's just so great yeah yeah and so then we have Woody is now he's fully uh, contacts high and driving with his friends and just driving and thinking. And he goes back to he's pondering his, his relationship with Kirstie Alley in which he <laughs> he was having sex with her patients like they were she was seeing patients out of the home and he started an affair with one of her patients. And there's a scene where she's screaming at him. She's so good. God, she's great in this whole scene. And but it's hilarious because she has a patient who comes in at the moment where she's really given it to him. And then she has them sit, lay on the, you know, the couch to start talking. And then she has to run away. And it's this one shot where you see, see Kirstie Alley leave. You hear her yell at Woody Allen in another room and then come back. And this poor guy's just laying there all uncomfortable. And then you cut to this really big, long scene where they, where Woody and Kirstie have this long conversation. And then it cuts back to the guy waiting. Cause you forgot that he's just there the whole time. Just this poor guy. He's laying there listening to this couple fight. And the fight is hilarious. You son of a bitch. What's wrong? You sick, 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 sick fucking bastard. What's wrong? What, what is wrong? wrong? What is wrong? What do you think is wrong? So you've been having a little bit of an affair with one of my patients, huh? Who? 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 What are don't you act about? like you don't know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Don't, don't speak. What? I just talked to her. She told me the who? whole thing. Who? 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 Mrs. Pollock. 
Amy Pollock. Can I explain you something? You know Amy Pollock. No, what? you cannot explain anything, you little fucking asshole. Will you calm down? Don't you tell me to calm down. What's wrong? No, but because I, what is wrong? I treat this woman, and she exits, and you meet her, and you fuck her. Supposing I told you that my fucking Amy Pollock was a disguised plea for more closeness with you. Oh, God, then I would say you were a mental case. This is you with your first wife. You're crazy. You know you were claiming that you loved her and that you, and that you couldn't live without her, and then all the while you were having affair after my affair after affair. Wife, I told you I was laying in bed with her one night. I turned off her because the, the way the light struck her, suddenly she looked to me like Max Schmeling. What do you want me to say? I, and not that she wasn't a pretty girl, but she looked like Max Schmeling. I couldn't get in her this is bullshit. Do you understand me? Bullshit. It is bullshit. With you, it's a completely different story. You turned off me. Oh, That's what happened ever since Hilly was born. You're the one. We've been living like brother and sister. It's been platonic. Don't you try and play blame the victim. What are you talking about? I'm. Hey, I'm as much a victim as you. You, you know, you think that getting a blowjob from a, a big bosom 26-year-old is a pleasurable thing for me? Oh, you're making it's... me sick. I can't believe this is happening. You're overreacting. I'm not overreacting. You, you, you Are you trying to tell me that every week for the last four months that you've been with her in the hotel? Oh, that's so crazy. I'm like, no, of course not. I, you know, I, we, I rented an apartment. I'm gonna kill you. No, you're, you're kidding. You're, you're, Hello, doctor. I'm, I'm sorry I'm late. Mr. Farber, take off your coat. Come in. God. I mean, I've been, I've been losing sleep at night. I can't shut my eyes at night. I, I think I should quit my job, but I can't bring myself to do it. Maybe because my brother-in-law treats me kindly, but, but working for him is taking its toll on me emotionally. Could you excuse it, me, Mr. Farber? What? Mr. Threat, you, you, you were talking about quitting your job. Oh, right. You know, uh, well, well, I've discussed it with my wife. And while she seems on the surface to be supportive, I know she'd rather I stay on. She idolizes Gordon. I mean, all the time, that's all she does is spend time with him anyway. Listen, could you and excuse just me a... just one more second, Mr. Farber? Again? Just continue. I can hear you from the hallway loudly. I want you to get out of here. I want you to get all your goddamn stuff together, and I want you to get out of here. You know, I cannot understand why the most sophisticated of women can't tell the difference between a meaningless, hot, passionate sexual affair and a nice, solid, tranquil, routine marriage. <laughs> Harry, just tell me something. Was she the only one or were there others? No, Amy Pollock was the only one. May God strike me dead if I'm lying. You're an atheist, Harry. Yeah. Hey, we're alone in the universe. You're gonna blame that on me too? Oh, stop that, stop that, stop that. You're, you, you know, you turned off me first. Oh, please. No, I, I gave birth. You know, when women give birth, there's a time period where their hormones just sort of go crazy. Yes, sir. But they settle. 
Okay, so if you're telling me that you're settling, I accept that. You no, accept that? Oh, Harry, you are so fucking nuts! Take it easy. Jesus. Harry, if you're not happy in a marriage, you don't cheat. And with my patience? Hey, Harry, that is a sacred trust, my patience. What do you want? Who else do I meet? I'm here, I'm working in the room, we have the baby, you're always out there practicing, we never socialize. So now you're blaming me because I don't go out with you enough places where you can meet strangers to fuck? Look, I was merely explaining to you why my choice of necessity is confined to your practice. God. I knew you were mentally ill before I married you, but I thought somehow, because I was a trained professional, that I could help you. Hey, come on. Don't, don't, the last thing you want to do is get down on yourself as a therapist. Oh, God! I want you to get your shit, and I want you to get your goddamn clothes, and I want you to get the fuck out here! You are the most fucking irresponsible person I've ever seen in my entire life! Get out! Continue, Mr. Farber. Doctor. And I mean tonight, motherfucker! <laughs> He's such a good actor. That guy killed it. That guy killed it. God, that scene is so good. Yeah. <laughs> Has Kirstie Alley ever been better in anything? I mean... She's good. I, I've always been a big fan. I mean, she's, I'm she's not great. knocking her. I'm Thank just you. saying that I've never seen her, like, she's screaming for 10 minutes. And it, that should get yeah. annoying. Like, it, that should get shrill and annoying and be like, if you were the director, you would say, modulate it. Let's give it, like, but she just is at 10 the whole time, and I buy every it second works. of it. Yes, yeah. it works. Yeah, yeah. Bravo, you should have won. If we were around then, you would have got an Oscar, uh, Kirstie Alley, you, for best supporting. <laughs> like so, so many performances in this are Oscar worthy. Hey, we're alone in the universe. You're going to blame me for that too? <laughs> so many good lines. Uh, so we're back to Stone Woody Allen, and he's talking to his characters again. And this time it's Demi Moore as the Jewish ghost of rec recriminations past. And she takes us to see how his sister actually stands up for him and talks really nicely about him when he's not around, which I don't know. I can only speak to my own experience and to the experience of other Jewish men who I've spoke, who I've talked with about this, but there is something about Jewish women who will uh, tear you down to your face, but fight to the death for you when you're not around. <laughs> and I just felt like that was uh, there's some subtle con speaking to that. And maybe that's just for everyone. I just know that because that's the side of the street I spend my time on. Um, so it's hard to keep track of the plot of this movie at this point because it is so fractured because it is like going in and out of his mind and his stories. And it doesn't tell you like it doesn't tell you it just does it. You know, right. there's no title cards in this movie. There's no filter change. It really is just like you just have to have a moment to figure out where, which world yeah. you're in. Well, all of a sudden we're in, <laughs> which... like, oh, we're in Tucci world. Oh, now we're in, you know, Kirstie Alley, the Kirstie Alley and Woody Allen. And he was married to Kirstie Alley, but he was also married to Amy Irving. Which one yeah. is Judy Davis, the sister of, and which one of these is like, yeah, it's, it's deconstructed. Yeah, it's confusing intentionally. <laughs> 
So anyway, so this is when Bob Balaban dies in the car. <laughs> Finally has his unbelievable heart attack. And um. uh, and <laughs> it's very sad. And Woody, and Woody shows up to the honoring now with his prostitute friend, his kidnapped son, and a dead man. <laughs> And uh, and he's drinking and taking tequila. Um, he's uh, sorry, he's drinking and taking pills. And now he's out of focus. We bring back the out of focus actor, but now he's out of focus while he's waiting to be honored. And Cookie talks him down, and and that's when he goes to be honored. And he says the line, "I don't think I should like these these stories. They're thinly veiled versions of myself. I don't think I should even disguise it anymore." It's me, which is definitely Woody speaking to this film. And actually, this is when we have the Woody in hell scene where he's talking with the devil. And we find out that Woody likes tequila, a new a new revelation of this film. And they drink to <laughs> evil. And uh, and then Kirstie Alley arrives to arrest Woody for kidnapping and again, we are in the realm of the film talking to Woody's perception of the of the whole Woody and Mia thing. Mm-hmm. Using the kids from the standpoint of this, it clear Woody is saying that his ex-wife is using the kids the kid as a weapon to hurt Woody for the ways that he hurt her that have nothing to do with the kid. That's what he's saying, I think, in the film. Anyway, so then we go to, we, he gets arrested. We have him with your buddy from The Sopranos in jail. <laughs> Bob Balaban's ghost shows up and gives him some force advice. More Star Wars references there. Um, <laughs> and then Billy Crystal and Elizabeth Shue have left their wedding to come to bail him and out. bail Woody out. And he still is so, he can't forgive them. He's so pissed. But eventually <laughs> he has to accept it the way he does. is some Actually, I thought some really wonderful acting. And people don't give Woody credit for his acting. Uh, and he can be very good. And then we have Giamatti showing, then we, we have Woody talking to his characters at this uh like a, a flight of fancy, I don't know, it's like a dream, sort of finishing the honoring the way he would have liked it to, with the Paul Giamatti hanging over his shoulder. And as he's sitting there, we're back in his apartment, and he, a moment of inspiration comes to him. He starts to realize what his next story is, and he starts writing. And the moral of the story is that writing saves your life, and then it ruins your life. <laughs> And yeah, and he has a great part at the end where he talks about like, yes, I'm a terrible person, but I'm a great artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I love it that they bring all the characters from the whole movie show up, uh, are all are all there in the at the end, and it's a, it's a really great ending. Yeah, yeah. And to, there there you have it. To me, it is that is the <laughs> end of. Like I really, I, there's a lot of films that Woody does afterwards, but I just don't think it's ever the same. Like that, this like, is. Wouldn't it be great if yeah. this was his last movie and that was the end? You know, that seems like a great. No. 
finish to a career. No. <laughs> you don't think so? No. I think it's I I think it's important that Woody has continued to put work out. First of all, because that's it's that's just how he's built. Woody doesn't think any of his films I don't think he thinks any of his films are good or good enough. Like <laughs> to end on. I feel like he is very like he I think he likes the work way more than any other part of the process. I don't think he gets off on the awards or the accolades. I don't think he sits back and is proud of his legacy as an artist, maybe on some level, like when he compares it to other people. But for himself, you listen to him talk about films that other people think of as masterpieces, and he's sort of like, eh. You know, either I either I haven't gone back to watch it or I only see what's wrong with it. So, yeah. Uh, and that's one of the things I love about him as an artist. He just he really I think unlike some other people, who, many other people who I think are motivated by. You know, by being liked or being accepted or being seen as special, I think that. You know, I, I like artists who just like doing the thing, you know, like the kind of people who would do a podcast every week talking about films to so that uh, like a few people in Australia and Austin <laughs> might listen to it. Uh, actually, this, this this week we had a we had a bunch of listeners in Seattle. I don't know how that happened, but hey, we must finally. have said something that made someone angry is all I'm thinking. <laughs> so. <laughs> So a lot of this movie reminds me of Stardust Memories, mm -hmm. like another movie, because he's also getting an award in that. Yep. And it's also him kind of like thinking about his life in a way. Uh, but it was a much younger Woody Allen at the time. You know, that was 20 or 17 years before this movie or 18 years before this. And uh, also it feels a lot Fellini-esque, which I know Woody is a big fan of. It has like an eight and a half sort of feel to it was sort of like following a, an artist around and this dreamlike thing. And then also remind me a lot of all that jazz mm -hmm. in terms of just sort of like a autobiography where you are making a fictionalized version of yourself, but it's basically you and you're not, you know, holding back on showing sort of the, the, the darker side <laughs> of, of your personality and life and the comp the complicated, you know, side of that life. Um, yeah, great, a great movie. Radio 8 Paul. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Hey babies, it is me, the self-appointed commissioner of comedy, James Matter. 
I just want to tell you that every week I'll be wherever you listen to podcasts with my show, The Commissioner of Comedy. I've been doing this, babies, for almost 20 years, grinding up and down, and I'm here to convey it to you about the do's and don'ts of the comedy scene, the proper etiquette, the unwritten rules, if you will. Whether you're just a fan or you're a young buck starting out, a grizzled old vet, or just someone who wants to peek behind the curtain and see how the sausage gets made, tune into the podcast, The Commissioner of Comedy. This is what it's about. It's only on Paper House Network, and it's for you, babies. It's for you. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. I just was I was looking up the cinematographer Carlo De Palma and this was his last film. Wow. Yeah. Did he die or he retired? Died in 2004, made this in 97. Maybe, maybe retired. Um Yeah, I'm trying to like he did a lot of Woody Allen films starting with Hannah and her sisters it looks like. Hmm. Uh, but oh, we did blow up. That's uh, wow. I'm looking so he goes way back. He goes way back. What's funny? So I haven't seen this movie since the theater. So I saw I've seen this movie twice now. I saw it in '97 when I was 17, and I saw it you know yesterday in 2022. And I swear there's a scene missing that I swear I maybe I'm just getting my Woody Allen movies mixed up. But, like, I swear there was a moment here that I kept waiting for, and then it didn't happen. What? And what is it? <laughs> well, there were two, and one I found out was for another Woody Allen movie, because the whole time I'm like, where's the part where Judy Davis pretends to fillet a banana? Isn't that in this movie? And then I'm like, no, no, that's in Celebrity, which came out. He worked with her again in Celebrity. But I swear to God... There was a, a scene, maybe I just made this up, or maybe I just made it dirty in my head, but when, when Cookie comes to for the first time, when he's telling her about all the stuff that he wants her to do, I swear that they move to the couch and she starts to give him a blowjob, and then it cuts to him in the bedroom with her. No, I and think I, and that's my, and your, the, I think that's And I kept for the last, you know, how old mind. is this movie? 30 years now? In my mind, I always thought that was in, and I remember that being really shocking that that was in this movie. I think you're thinking and of Brown Bunny. In, Have you seen? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I am. You're trying to Brown, Brown Bunny, Bunny deconstructing Harry. Well, that, where's the part where Woody Allen drives for ten minutes in the desert on his motorcycle? Isn't that in this movie? Uh, there's no way Woody Allen would ever get on a motorcycle. Um, <laughs> but no, I swear that was in this movie, and I, it's not. So. But it, that doesn't happen in any other Woody Allen movie, so I, I'm just kind of left confused that like I did, it, my weird perverted mind filled that in, I guess, <laughs> over the time, <laughs> a false memory of this happening. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah, let's can we um, we always do this on the director's wall, but this movie was actually nominated for an Oscar. And it's always fun to kind of it lost, of course. But he was always uh, getting nominated for Oscars and not going. But he was usually yeah. winning, and this is one of the few times where he's nominated and didn't win because usually he won 
for screenplay. Like that's what he gets his original screenplay. But '97 was a pretty interesting year at the Oscars. Do we mind if we look at it for a moment, oh, yeah. or I, 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 like we talk about Tell it? Tell me. So we don't have to go through the whole Oscars. '97. Uh, Who was the big winner was, that year? The big uh, best picture. Well, the big winner was uh, Goodwill Hunting won supporting actor Jack Nicholson for actor for As Good as It Gets. Helen Hunt for as good as it gets. Ellie Confidential, but the best picture, the big winner was Titanic. That was the big. This is the year of Titanic. The the Oscars for, this is the '98 Oscars for the movies from 1997. But Deconstructing Harry got one nomination, which was for best original screenplay, and it lost. But here's what. Do you remember what won? '97. Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting won for Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Terrence Anonymous. Malick and Robert Townsend. <laughs> <laughs> William. The other uh, movies up was as good as it gets. Gold, William Goldman, sorry, that's sorry. Yeah. Yeah, William Goldman. <laughs> as good as it gets was up for original screenplay. Do you like that movie? I don't like that movie. No, I do not like that movie. <laughs> I not a huge James L. Brooks fan. And it's a, an offensive portrayal of OCD, in my opinion. I, I do. I uh, am a James L. Brooks fan, but I do not like that movie. Uh, then you have The Full Monty. Uh, totally fine movie. At the time, a big crowd pleaser, kind of forgotten about now. I feel people don't really... But at the time, that was like a thing that everybody... That was the magic mic of its time, but with just like, you know, pudgy cockney guys well, you know i mean we people can't people can't afford a full monty these days <laughs> half a monty is going to be enough for most for most people yeah. and then uh boogie nights was up for screenplay which would have been my pick uh at the time i think now i would have totally picked deconstructing Harry. maybe that's the, the time... maybe that's the blowjob scene you were remembering <laughs> <laughs> yeah is there that part where Woody Allen takes his dick out and looks in the mirror and says he's a bright and shiny star where, where's that in this movie oh wait that was Boogie Nights um, but <laughs> yeah that's an interesting uh, very five very different movies and of course they gave it to Goodwill Hunting because everybody was in love with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and their friendship and it's, they were there was I mean the story it is better. a very it's good like, script oh, and if you it is a great script it, good job William Goldman and Terrence Malick. <laughs> and if you don't know that and you just see these two young guys who you're told wrote this screenplay and you watch that movie and you see the that speech about like Matt Damon's speech about why he wouldn't take this job with the defense contractors and Ben Affleck's speech yeah. about, you know, the best moment of my day is when I walk up and hope that you're not going to be here. That stuff's it's, I mean, William Goldman's a great writer. <laughs> Uh, and it's a great movie and it's a better story being like let's give these kids the oscar these best friends wrote this script they did so great uh the the uh adapted screenplay was also interesting that year the winner was of course la confidential but an even more strange bunch of movies you have donnie brasco which i didn't realize was up for an oscar <laughs> for screenplay the wings of the dove the sweet hereafter and Wag the Dog for, for the David Mamet script, which is a great script and a great movie. It is. So pretty good, uh, yeah, pretty good collection of, of scripts that year for 97. Uh, also, it's that weird thing where the movie that won Best Picture not nominated for any screenplay <laughs> award at all, which I find always odd when that happens, where it's like, 
Well, if it's not the best written movie of the year, how is it the best movie of the year? Well, for a, for a film like Titanic, you don't. It's not yeah, about what they're saying. Script. It's about the boat going in the water, and that's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, it, I have to say, it is a little bit weird that we're getting into the Oscars when talking about Woody Allen, who is has throughout his entire career has refused to engage with the Oscars. He's <laughs> never gone. Um, you know, there was. It, it, there's a I'm friend I, I talked about Bob Whitey before and uh, he's he's an old friend and uh, I was talking with him once he's been a, a aside from doing uh, the documentary on Woody he's written a lot in uh, defense of Woody Allen and uh, criticizing the case that is made against him and at one point I was talking with him about this and he was saying how at one point, there was this whole petition that was going around to get Woody Allen kicked out of the Academy of Motion Pictures, <laughs> and they got all these signatures on it, and it was all a big thing until they realized that Woody Allen had never joined the Academy, and they'd been trying to get him to join for years and years, and he just was he always like, care. I don't join those kind of things. Uh, yeah. Uh, when he was, when he was uh, nominated for Andy Hall... Oh, and it won. It, he won best director, uh, you know, best screenplay and best. Film. He didn't show up because he didn't in best film. He didn't show up because he said he had band practice. Yeah, his band was playing that night. And then I think there's a great quote. And it must have been for Annie Hall when it won. But he said that Oscars just don't make sense, and that uh, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, so it won't be as clever. But like, it makes sense that you can have someone be like the fastest runner or the strongest man. There's a, there's a thing of measurement there that makes sense, but to say best actor, best picture, like what does that even mean? Yeah. And he's right. <laughs> he's totally correct. <laughs> and, uh, who accepted the Oscar for him? I don't know who was, uh, who was the person that uh, took the award for him? Not not Satchin Littlefeather. No, but, I'm sure. Uh, I'm who... sure it was just like the, you know, it's accept. You know, whoever presented it. <laughs> yeah, we'll accept it on the. You know, I'm I'm sure when the when it won, the producers, you know, Joffe and uh, Rollins yeah. and maybe Marshall Brickman were there to get yeah. stuff, but who knows? But man, he he's been nominated for best screenplay like 16 times. Like that's got to be a record. Yeah. So let's see. We have you had, uh, Annie Hall. Uh, Annie, interiors. Annie Hall in, oh, you want to interiors? Do it. Yeah. Sorry. Annie Hall interiors, which nominated uh, Manhattan, nominated Broadway. Danny Rose nominated Purple Rose of Cairo, nominated Hannah and Her Sisters, uh, won. Radio Days nominated. So let's just go back. Prime that's eight. So it's. So Broadway, Danny Rose, Purple Rose of Cairo, Hannah and Her Sisters, Radio Days is 85, 86, 87, 88. Just every year <laughs> you're just getting up for best writing. Then we have 90, feel... 91, and 90 is Crimes and yeah, Misdemeanors. Crimes and Misdemeanors, uh, Alice 91. for 91, Husbands and Wives in 93, uh, Bullets Over Broadway in 95, which he was also up for best director again. Uh Mighty Aphrodite in 96, and here we are deconstructing in 98. Uh, Match Point afterwards in 2006. One for Midnight in Paris in 2012. Nominated Blue Jasmine 2014. Um, that's 
that's gotta be a record. There's no way there's anyone else with that many screenplay nominations every fucking year, like in the eighties where it's just like every year it just, and it's not like they're just being nice or they love him. They know he's not going to come. They don't like him. And they don't like him, but that's just how good the scripts are that you can't deny. You have to nominate it. Uh, so like it's uh that's a lot. That's a lot of, of, of nominations. It's a lot of noms as they say in the biz. Um, yeah, that's kind of incredible. And just uh, and like, with BAFTAs, he won for Husbands and Wives. He won for Hannah and Her Sisters. He won for Purple Rose of Cairo. He won for Broadway Danny Rose. He won for Manhattan. He won for Annie Hall. Yeah. That's, so, uh, and he doesn't give a shit. Does not care <laughs> at all. Does not. We, we just talking about this for this last 10 minutes is the more, most he's ever thought, more than he's ever thought about it. <laughs> he does not give a fuck about any of these awards that he doesn't want them. I wonder where they go. Cause they must make an Oscar, right? Or do they not make, like they, it's there. Yeah. So like, is there a museum that's just like, a, or is there just a box in my mind, there's just like a box in the back of the Academy Awards to be like, oh, yeah, that's, that's Woody Allen's Oscars. Just throw him in the box. <laughs> he probably has someone, you know, he gives it to an assistant who puts it in the archives. Like, you can have it. You can have stuff, it. You know, like, put it with the manuscripts and the, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> Maybe his kids take wow. it to school to show off or show and tell or something. Is there any there that you think, think should have been nominated but didn't? Where you're like, no, again, I don't like. Either? I I don't like. I'm with Woody. You're such a fan, so it's hard. For I you don't. To tell, right? I mean, I just don't even. Yeah, I mean, Love and Death is an amazing. I think Love and Death is a great screenplay. I'll just go through. I don't know. Again, I don't know about uh, about <laughs> Oscars. I don't think. I I think it's good that the Oscars have stopped paying attention to him because he <laughs> never wanted their attention. Uh, but I, Shadows and Fog is a particular favorite of mine. And I think probably Vicky Cristina Barcelona is a pretty mm. special film. Is that a drama? Uh, yeah, but not like match, not like a match point type drama. Mm. It's not, it's not without humor. Yeah. So, so he, so this was his last, I feel, really personal movie, Deconstructing Harry. Yeah. But he makes another, you know, like 80 movies <laughs> after after this. And I kind of stopped watching him. Like, I haven't... I saw... I was in there through Melinda, Melinda, and then I just stopped. And I didn't see Match Point the following year. And I never saw... And I never saw uh, Midnight in Paris, even though everyone was into that movie. Like, it just sort of, like... For whatever reason, I got too busy and I never, you know, he, cause he didn't stop. He didn't wait for me. <laughs> so I don't think I've seen going. Melinda Melinda. Really? Yeah. It's not very good. <laughs> it's, I think the problem with that is that it's sort of the same problem as celebrity where it's should be Woody Allen, but you have someone doing a Woody Allen impersonation, which some people can do better than others. So like in Melinda Melinda, it's Will Ferrell doing Woody Allen, which doesn't work at all. Um, but what is interesting about that movie is you get another uh, main character played by an African or by, by a black actor. Uh, and so Chewy Etchafar, how he's murders. Yeah. He's one of the main characters and he's great. And so it's just, it's nice to see him 
nice to see Woody try to put in someone that isn't just a bunch of white guys, though, you know, everyone else in the movie is. But that's but it's really uh, there's parts of that movie that are really good. Wallace Shawn is really good in it. Um, the main actress, Rada Mitchell, is really good in it. Uh, it's it's fine, but it's it's definitely one of the lesser ones. And I think the Will Ferrell casting is sort of like what brings it down and doesn't really work. Mm hmm. But you should watch. I'm surprised you haven't seen it. Is that the only one you've never seen? No, no. There's a few that I have that I still have to see. I think I've. Uh... Did I see To Rome with Love? I don't think I saw To Rome with Love. Um. I. There's like Match Point, and what's the one with uh, with you and McGregor on the. And his brother on the boat. Oh, oh yeah. Dream. Was, is that what it is? Yeah. I had never yeah, seen that Yeah, I don't like one. like when, yeah. when Woody does thrillers, I'm sure they're really good, but it's just not what I go to Woody Allen for. So I yeah. I appreciate that he's doing it, but like I didn't match point. I really I was I had the mixed bag of like I respect this movie, but I don't like it. I don't want to watch this movie. <laughs> this is not what I want from uh, a Woody Allen film and the thing that justifies it for me <laughs> is that then they made Scoop and Vicky Cristina Barcelona together have you seen Scoop? no I haven't seen uh, I haven't literally have not Scoop seen any is Woody great. Allen movie since 2004 so Scoop is great she is very uh, Scarlett Johansson is very funny and very good in it and she's just picking on Woody Allen the whole time <laughs> she's great <laughs> she's been, yeah uh very okay. light. It's light. It's very like Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Like it, a very goes down easy kind of film, but very fun. Very fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Great. Okay. Well, well, thank you for, for talking about Woody with me for a, for a good long time. You know, I, I fought it for so long. And last year I, I bailed on your, uh, the front episode. So you, 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 you caught me. You got me. <laughs> Well, <laughs> but, but it was worth it because this movie is really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> and it's good to be uncomfortable. So, I, you know, I need to make myself more uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> and speaking of making uncomfortable, we're going to make you uncomfortable with our next episode. Uh. <laughs> As somehow I uh, convinced you to watch uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, the one, <laughs> the dream child. The one that you weren't invited back for. The one you've never seen. So I think it'll be finally good. I want to see you squirm a little. Well, luckily, <laughs> it's not going to be 100% me squirming because we're going to have a very, very special guest. My Nightmare on Elm Street for co-star and the star of Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, Lisa Wilcox. Yeah. My sister from the from nightmare four yeah so uh she loves talking about that movie and she also loves watching me squirm not about that but just in general <laughs> so you two will have a lot of fun with that <laughs> uh yeah no it'll be ex interesting and exciting and just like a, a, I'm, I'm looking forward to it <laughs> uh yeah 
I am not, but I I am. I, I am I always like hanging out with you and I always like hanging out with Lisa and maybe I'll learn yeah. something. <laughs> this will be your deconstructing Harry. Yeah. <laughs> deconstructing Andras. So uh and de- to deconstruct here, I think it's time at this point in the show to share what uh we'll be sharing more information about this. But we are going to be ending our second season with uh, this next episode. And then the one at, we'll do one afterwards, just sort of explaining all of what's going on and what our next, what our plans are. But we are going to be wrapping up this second season of the world is wrong podcast with our nightmare on Elm street five, the dream child episode. And we have our reasons they are good reasons. It's not because Brian and I have had some falling out. It's not because <laughs> one of us has some uh, ailment, which is making it impossible for us to do it. Well, again, we'll explain it all when we talk, but it's all good stuff. And we're going to be continuing to record episodes. And when we come back with season three, we're going to have a lot of we're, we're still going to have a lot of great films to talk about with you uh, or talk about with each other for you, I guess. Uh, and. That will probably be sometime in the fall. So we'll, you know, subscribe to our social medias and whatnot, and we will definitely be announcing as we figure out when we are coming back. But that is the situation. And Brian, you don't have to cry about it. I hear you sniffling. It's, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You know, you're a busy man. I'm, you know, I'm accommodating to busy men. Uh, you have anything to say about that to allay yeah, our, our we'll listeners' talk, we'll, fears or concerns? No, well, uh, yeah, don't worry. We still have like lots of movies we want to talk about, so we we definitely have another season in us. Yes, yes. <laughs> so this is not this is not farewell forever. Just farewell for now. Yes, farewell for the season. No. We have a lot of work to do on some other things. So, yes, Brian and I are building a house together, and we're going to move into it. <laughs> Um, okay well uh, if you if you like this podcast and you want to find out more about what uh, either of us is doing Brian co-hosts the podcast The Director's Wall with AJ Gonzalez and they're going through the filmography of Francis Ford Coppola you recently dropped an episode about what Godfather Part 3 Yes, the best Godfather film. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> no. The best Godfather film without Robert Duvall in it. Okay. Yeah. I'll give you that. And great episode. I highly encourage people to check it out. I, I hope people are, are, are following along with the director's wall while they're following along with this. I feel like there is... Uh, the. The two, our two shows aren't necessarily in conversation with each other, but there there is some spillover. So uh, if you like this, you probably like that. And of course, you can always check out my other stuff, my other web, my other podcast, Radio Eight Ball. You can find it at radioeightball.com. And uh, in the, our wrap up episode, I'll be telling you about some other cool things that I have coming down the pipe. Uh, so. Keep your eyes and ears open for that. 
If you want to tell us why we shouldn't talk about Woody Allen, you can write to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com. You can share your opinions about what we've said about this or any other film we've covered. And if you do, we'll read about it on the show. And the fact that we never read emails on the show is a testament to the fact that you aren't writing to us. It's okay. We're very busy, but we would make time if you did. And uh, you can also find us on the social medias on Instagram at the world is wrong podcast at uh, on Twitter at world is wrong pod. Every one of these episodes has a page devoted to it at our website, which is www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com. And that, I think, brings us to the end of this episode. You think so, Brian? Yeah, I think so. We did it. Okay. Well, in that case, just remind you that wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it's probably wrong about you. some of the happiest moments of my life and 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 you've even saved my life at times you know and now now you've you've actually taught me things you know and i'm completely grateful i think for this, the author's really. message is to know yourself stop kidding yourself accept your limitations and get on with your life it's amazing to me it's a it's a really interesting character a, a guy who who can't function well in life but but can only function in art, you know, it's 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 sort of sad in a way, and also funny. Like, well, but your books all seem a little sad on the surface, really? which is why I like deconstructing them because underneath they're really happy. It's just that you don't know it. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> Johnny, I feel like I'm like like I'm in a dream. Like, this for me is like the best dream I've had in 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 months. You know, the happiest dream. I like it. I like it. A character who's too neurotic to function in life but can only function in art. Notes for a novel. Opening possibility. Rifkin led a fragmented, disjointed existence. He had long ago come to this conclusion. All people know the same truth. Our lives consist of how we choose to distort it. Only his writing was calm. His writing, which had in more ways than one, saved his life. My analyst told me that I was right out of my head the way he described it. He said I'd be better dead than live. I didn't listen to his jive. I knew all along he was all wrong. And I knew that he thought I was crazy, but I'm not. Oh, no. My analyst told me that I was right out of my head. He said I'd need treatment, but I'm not that easily led. He said I was the type that was most inclined. Went out of his sight, took me out of my mind. And he thought I was nuts. 
No more is our answer, but so no. They say as a child I appeared a little bit wild with all my crazy ideas. But I knew what was happening, I knew I was a genius. What's so strange if you know that you're a wizard at three? I knew that this was meant for me. I heard little children were supposed to sleep tight. That's why I drank a fifth of vodka one night. My parents got frantic, didn't know what to do. But I saw some crazy scenes before I came to. Now do you think I was crazy? I may have been only three, but I was swinging. They all have today, Graham Bell. They all have today, Edison and also an Einstein. So why should I feel sorry if they just couldn't understand the reasoning and the logic that went on in my head? I had a brain, it was insane, so just let them laugh at me when I refused to ride on all those double-decker buses, all because there was no driver on the top. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola, Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.